The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. No mai hoki mai ki fold e mihine ko Duncan Grieve talking My guests today are Melanie Spencer and Wendy Thompson from Thompson Spencer, which is on one level a almost brand new agency, and on another one that's got roots that go back older than the spin-off, go back to 2010. Uh, so basically, that there are this is. The, the new part of it is the, is the name and the fact that they have, you know, out of the, the sort of the birth of the Socialites, which was the original agency, gone on to acquire five or six others that have taken that original proposition of what was a, an influencer agency, like right at the very dawn of, of social as, a, a, as an advertising medium in New Zealand, to, to sort of round out the different parts of the business, whether that's media buying, they've got Flying Tiger, which uses WeChat to, to sort of speak to Chinese audiences. They've got People of Influence, which is a you know almost more like a, a talent agency, but and and various other elements too. But the I guess the the general thesis and what makes them interesting, why I wanted to have them on, is that. Yeah, for a lot of the the advertising industry, this thing that fuels the New Zealand media, fuels the creator economy. Uh, the you know, it's it's the engine underneath us. That's why I'm doing this. Is that social has tended to be an afterthought and something that you sort of packaged up a bit of at the end of a campaign. That that isn't always true, and is less and less true. But it's still fundamentally a lot of the traditional advertising media comes from a creative idea that the most logical execution of is still a television commercial. There is a complete upending of that uh, with with Thompson Spencer in that they will start with a whole bunch of social executions, influencer executions, and the ones that really bite, that really connect with their community, then they'll move those up into traditional media spots on, on billboards or television commercials. And I think that that fundamental upending of the traditional or the conventional approach to advertising is what makes them quite challenging. They're also, this is an agency run by founded by, run by, owned by two women. That's still uh, very unconventional in this business. We talk about that. But mainly this is really dwelling on the the influencer economy, which is something I'm really 
interested in is very challenging to us in the traditional media and because it is ultimately uh, it's a little bit additive it's also a little bit substitutive like people will switch from you know being tv viewers netflix viewers to to being youtube viewers tiktok viewers and that is the that is the fuel that drives the continued growth in both raw numbers and in market share of the influencer economy and you the thompson spencer are one way to look at that so here is melanie spencer and wendy thompson on the fold kia ora koura and uh, welcome to the fold kia ora kia ora uh start by telling me about thompson spencer and uh, you know this sort of at once you know long established but also very new uh agency and and what's the the sort of proposition around it well, apparently I get to go first. <laughs> I'm doing the nod. Yeah, so um, so my name's Wendy and I'm the original founder of Socialites back in 2010. My background is advertising agencies, which is really fun. And Mel came along in 2019 and joined our joined our group and we became the Socialites group. And we did a we started adding different, I suppose, extensions to our what we did in terms of social media. And we kind of got to this year and we were like, Hmm, we've actually got like six different companies mm-hmm. under the socialites group and they're not all to do with social media. So we really need to have a think about a rebrand, which was fun. And luckily for Mel and I, we both got quite good last names. We didn't go with our first husband's last names, which would not have been as pretty. <laughs> uh, but we, um, So Thompson Spencer um, came to be, which is just a lot clearer for everybody involved. I wonder if you could sort of start by, you know, you, you mentioned the the sort of relatively rapid pace of acquisitions which have, have put the thing together. And and rather than sort of it being a kind of more traditional agency that bolts on social media, you come from a social space and have bolted on some more traditional elements. Uh well, yeah, what's what's the the sort of thinking there to 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 sort of add some more conventional elements to to the you know still relatively new uh, sort of realm of social? Well, about three years ago, we were sitting around a table and doing a bit of a strategy session, and Wendy and I were like, just imagine a world where um, so it beca- advertising was social first. And then assets were created for social and then um, went out to traditional um, uh, mediums. And that just started happening. It really started happening. And clients were coming to us and going, hey, we want to do this social media campaign, but those assets are awesome. We want to put them in out of home or we want to put them across TV. Um, So it just completely made sense that um, we bolted on these um, other um, business units that specialised in traditional. Um, and But everything that we do, um, community is at the core of everything that we do or the heart of everything we do. And I would say, say that social media is still the beating heart of the agency, but it just everything wraps around um, uh, the campaigns and the, the creativity um, that we do for our clients. That's, that is quite a profound difference, right? Because you, you very frequently see the, that film, meaning like a, a version of a TVC, is often at the core of uh, big campaigns running out of the more sort of established agencies. And it can feel like they don't really fit when they're put into social environments, that they, they sort of sit there 
but they they just don't, it doesn't seem like native to the form or, or like it has a resemblance to the the content that wraps around it. You know, do, do you sort of see that dissonance? Is that what's sort of driving it? One hundred percent. And I think um, clever marketers know that. Clever marketers know that matching luggage just does not work on social, um, and and that's why it's starting to do go social first, um, because um, the amazing assets that are created for social can roll out beautifully to traditional platforms. Mm. And the cool thing about social is you immediately get feedback. So you might have spent you know millions of dollars making a thirty second TV ad. You don't really know if it works or not. Whereas you put something out in social and you'll be told very quickly by your community whether or not it works. And the great thing is you can do 10 or so different variations, work out which one works the best and then roll it across your different channels and media media marketing mix. It's, a, it's just a lot smarter. Yeah, I mean, it does sound, you know, like it's it's a it's a inverse way of putting it. Is there any danger of, of the kind of the reverse of what you're describing happening when you put them into those other environments where something that works really well in a social context, once it's put on a you know, on a TVC or on, on a billboard, sort of starts to kind of be deprived of the context that, that makes it explicable? Always. There is always a risk. Um, but as Wendy said, you've kind of trialled it with your community. Um, and your community, if you've got a community of raving fans, which you should do if you've got um, a powerful brand on social, then um, they will let you know. Um, so it's already been tested. What is your relationship to more traditional media? Do you do you still see the value in the kind of legacy or non-UGC platforms? And, and how do you sort of decide how to kind of add that to to that media mix uh, beyond the, the sort of core social environment? I 100% think, think that there is still a place um, for traditional. Um, and... It, it's just important to know where your audiences are um, and how to and how to connect with them on traditional or digital. Um, your audience is everywhere and your audience um, wants to see your content if it is engaging everywhere as well. Um, so there is absolutely still a place for, for traditional, um, but social just elevates it. And you've got to remember that traditional is that one-way broadcast, so that's where you get that um, huge reach, which is important for, for brands. Uh, but social media is where you get that two-way um, connectivity with, with your audience. So you're really connecting um, with with your audience on social um, on a on a human level, um, but that traditional is where you get that um, that big reach, which is also really important. And I would add that people a lot smarter than me in the media team get to actually carve up the budgets. That's what they do. It's what they're really good at. <laughs> and they've got some really interesting strategies around it. And I'd like to say it's not my thing. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I mean, so let's talk about that that kind of acquisition spree that you've been on over the past few years. What, what has driven that? And, you know, like, do you feel like the, the shape of the agency, you know, built out and and around that core proposition proposition is, is complete or are there other areas that you could describe that might sort of give you an even more uh, rounded out proposition? Yeah, we're still looking um, for other things or like we always, always got our eyes and ears out. Uh, I feel we've got the the core 
like the core is there. So now it's just adding on little bits and pieces, really. Um, and I think we've mentioned as well, we're also looking in Australia just to see what we can find there. How do you find, you know, if, if social is the core and, and often that does seem to be driven by an, an influencer, that how how do you sort of, because you do have quite a number of international clients, how do you mm-hmm. take uh, a community that might have a, a strong geographical bias towards New Zealand and then kind of connect that up to an international brand or is it is it marketing that brand to a New Zealand audience? How does that all work? Um, sort of depends on who we're we're marketing to. So our international brands, we are normally, I mean, it's Asia Pacific where we tend to do some really great work, but then we're also working with New Zealand brands in, say, the States, for example. So in the States, we're working with American influencers who've got large American populations. Uh, so it just, it's horses for courses, really. It's just, it, it, you know, as Mel said, it's just going back to where is the community and then connecting with them where they want to be connected with. So, yeah, we work with influencers all around the world as well. So so let's talk about that sort of, I mean, you kind of hear the term creator economy and, and influencer marketing and a few mm-hmm. different things. How, how do you like to refer to it and what, how would you characterise the relative maturity of that, that space as of now? Oh, now you're probably closer. I've got thoughts, but I'll let you go. Look, it's, uh, it's still got a ways to go in New Zealand, for sure. Um, and the funny thing is, it's always been around. When you think of Dan Carter and his Bonds underwear, um, and I used to look after high-profile chefs um, back in the day, goodness, 20 years ago, and that was before um, influencers were even influencers. Um, when we acquired the Social Club, which was in 2020, mm. we were still having to uh, talk uh, brands into using influencers now only three years later, they're using influencers as an always-on drumbeat because they know that they can leverage, A, their content and their content creation, but also their communities. So it is it is becoming stronger and stronger in New Zealand, but there is still a ways to go here in New Zealand in, in really leveraging um, influencers um, and, and their content and also their communities. Mm. I'm seeing it. In, in an interesting space as well, in the B2B market as well. It's quite cool. We've started doing quite a bit of work, like say I'm thinking about Microsoft, for example, working with, you know, trying to sell, you know, software, Microsoft products <laughs> um, at a, you know, at a very high, you know, procurement level and working with, you know, tech entrepreneurs and you know, very sort of more of a B2B level. It's really interesting. Uh, it's not just for selling not just for selling bend on undies, unfortunately. Yeah, and um, you can look at influencers as um, ambassadors, specialists in their areas, so for, for B2B clients, mm-hmm. um, it works really, really well. So there are different levels and for, for different um, types of brands, B2B and B2C, and it works really, mm-hmm. really well. I mean, there has been, you know, the, there was a, a long period in which the, you know, a more traditional kind of journalistic media covered technology with a, a very kind of optimistic view of it, kind of uncritically, and then that swung around almost potentially to an excessive level over the past few years. You think about the the sort of Francis Horgan Instagram um, papers that the Wall Street Journal covered, and you know, it's just one of the t- of, uh, any number of like it's basically a, a large daily beat for a lot of US publications now. Yeah, you know, that which broadly speaks to a kind of 
a general misgiving, level of misgivings around the social platforms and particularly their impact on, on certain communities. How do you sort of mitigate some of those risks for brands that you're working with? Or what, what is your response if those uh, you know, situations are raised with, with clients, uh, by clients? Sorry. Firstly, that's why you use an agency <laughs> because uh, agencies – it's on us to make sure that we vet those influences and vet them really, really well um, and mitigate those risks. So when we propose an influencer or we, before we engage an influencer, we're doing deep research on them. Um, and uh, first, we make sure that they're right for the brand, uh, but also that the the brief and the contracting is watertight to protect um, not only the brand, but us, um, and also the influencer as well. So um, you get to know the the, the people that um, could possibly put a brand at risk, um, and um, you do your research. Um, and, you know, we're not about using influencers for influencer's sake. It, it is about... Um, using them for their content creation, um, their communication, um, and and leveraging their communities as well. So we see it as um, using them for good, um, but um, not for influencer's sake. You talk about leveraging their communities, and as they're sort of there was a period of time while, while this was all kind of being established that there was, you know, that it, it wasn't kind of quite, it's clear what was um, what the transaction was. Do, have you found that uh, you know as it has matured that the the sort of relationship between a brand, an influencer, and their community like that that it's operating smoothly, or, or do you sometimes find that there is a a, a tension between an audience that might have found and followed an influencer for? one thing and then is finding that they're ultimately being packaged and sold in another. Yeah, I mean, it's, the thing is an influencer will never do anything that will put their community at risk. So it's almost a, almost a bit of a fallacy to, for that to happen. I've never actually – it's talked about a lot in the media, but I've, I've literally never actually heard of it happening because at the end of the day, an influencer's most valuable asset is their community. So they don't want to lose that trust. If they lose that trust, they're over tomorrow. So there's a whole lot of talk in the media that, you know, they're just pushing ads, et cetera. Their community actually understands that that's how they make money, so they actually don't have a problem with it. Years ago, when you know, before it was all kind of legal to have, you know, hashtag gifted or hashtag ad, we worked really closely with the Advertising Standards Authority to help them create those guidelines that the advertising industry uses. So we've, we're literally integral to how it's all ended out. Sorry or not sorry, depending on how you felt that those went. But um, it actually works really well. And, yeah, I've never seen a problem with it. They're smart business people. Like, they know uh, what works for the community and what's going to piss them off. Um, and also when you've got talent managers, so people of influence, um, we call her our, our influencer whisperer, Molly. She works with our talent um, to to either say, "Look, this is great for your for you and your brand and your community," or it's not. Um, and we love it when influencers turn us down because it means that they're taking it seriously. Are there are there examples of a particular influencer or, or brand that's doing something that you consider to be kind of path breaking or, or that 
is is a represents where this is is heading and you know in in terms of a, a campaign or a, an ongoing body of work i think we're going to see a lot more collaboration happening we're starting to see little bits and pieces. Well, we see a lot lot of it internationally, um, and I think that'll start to flow through into Australasia a lot more. So actually c- proper collaborations. Collaborations is, between different influencers and the brand? or the Yes, brand between the, the brands and the influencers. And that's right. just, in the States, it's very well recognised that the influencers are a brand in their own right. So for them to have, you know, you look at Rihanna and I think it was Adidas or something, you know, you've got these brands brand partnerships happening, and I think we'll see more and more of that happening here. Haven't seen a lot of it happening yet, but no, I feel like it's we're just it's, on the on the cusp of it. That's mm. my my guess. And in terms of the 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 sort of changes to Instagram and Facebook's feeds and priorities, which mm. often in response to you know, t- TikTok, particularly over the past few years, how how has that sort of impacted your business or or the kind of uh, influencers that you're working with? They've just got to tell their story slightly differently. Um, you've got to connect with your audience really, really quickly. Uh, that short form uh, works really, really well. Um, and it's also lo-fi um, that's um, trending at the moment. So that lo-fi, really authentic, genuine cont- content. So not that high polished um, content that you would see on on TV or your Instagram feed. So that is changing. And we've just got to be ahead of the game and we've got to move fast Um, And that's why, as an agency, we've become known as um, that agency that can react and and move fast with with the trends that are happening. And um, and Meta is just keeping up with with TikTok, and and they're doing a great job of it. An interesting one on that is when you talk about lo-fi, which is a big trend at the moment, it's that real raw as someone who has a 14 and 17-year-old daughters, it's pretty raw. <laughs> it's hilarious. But when we look at Flying Tiger, which is the Chinese specialist marketing agency we bought last last year, last year, what's really interesting, if you look at the Chinese platforms like WeChat and um, Little Red Book, which is kind of like a combination of Pinterest and Instagram, it's very lo-fi and it is almost ahead of the curve a little bit as well. So we pick up, we sort of almost see what's happening in the Chinese space and kind of hits... Hits, and I think gives us a um, gives us an advantage when it kind of hits um, the Western world as well. Mm. And I think there there is a a place for that um, high value, beautiful content as well. And mm. I know that our favourite campaign is um, the Gucci campaign with the with the train spotter, and that is another type of influencer, right? Um, he is a train spotter. That's what he is. And um, Gucci just saw this amazing opportunity um, and collaborated mm. with um, with this guy. And it, yeah. Just, just incredible, creative, unique way of getting the brand out there. It's interesting you talked about this, the lo-fi aesthetic, which is undeniably true in that space, but brands and, and the agencies that wrap around them have spent decades basically telling them that they had to present, you know, not always, but the vast majority of times and with a particular kind of level of polish as as you described. Is there a, you know, how do you find the education process where you might have, even if it's even if it's well understood within parts of the marketing department, once it kind of echoes up to maybe people who aren't quite as close to the sort of the culture on the stuff, are they always comfortable with the way this thing sort of looks and feels? 
No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, is, tell, tell me a, how that goes. It's a journey. It's a journey. I mean, it comes down to trust at the end of the day. So, you know, we've been around forever. We've get fantastic results and it's there is a lot of like, come on, you've got to be brave. <laughs> we can pull it if we really have to, but I think you should try it. <laughs> <laughs> or we like to use the word pilot a lot. Um, but it's just, it is just a matter of, I think because now large brands overseas are doing it, it's helping the New Zealand Australian brands step into it a bit more. But it is still, yes, it's not a, you know. And the thing is we love polish as well. I think that that helps because we both come from agency background. Like mm-hmm. There's nothing more beautiful than a heart-rendering piece of content, um, whether it's, you know, st- Lo-fi or hi-fi. And the, and the great thing is is that we can show the C-suite and board level the results. And that's what's going to get them to, to turn or to flip. Um, to show them the lo-fi um, quality content without the results, that's not going to get them. It's not going <laughs> to move them. <laughs> and also, we, it is a trend. I, I can see it flipping It is back a trend. Again. It is always a trend. Yeah. Give, us, give it another year and it'll be back to completely filtered over-the-top stuff again. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Um, and you were talking before about Flying Tiger. Your yes. um, that that sort of speaks to a whole demographic that quite often feels like it is uh, excluded from the the sort of marketing mm. story in New Zealand. Uh, you know, I, uh, the demographer Paul Spoonley uh, on this podcast a few weeks ago, speaking to just how fast growing and sort of under appreciated the um, the whole Pan-Asian diaspora is. How do you, you know, given that you have the opportunity within social to kind of speak to more, more easily to these different communities, how do you go about sort of uh, identifying that? And do you consider that to be an advantage of, of your approach? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Flying Tiger is fantastic because, you know, we are talking in, I mean, there's a quarter of a million Chinese speakers in New Zealand and they're not on Western social media and they're not watching TV and they're not listening to um, non-Chinese radio. So how else do you reach these people? And they do tend to be um, Auckland-based and um, a sort of a higher, higher, higher socio. So a lot of our brands are really interested in talking to this segment of the community. And we can do that. We've got a broad, we've got the largest, just like, just like our social club, we've got the largest database of KOLs, which is the um, key opinion leaders, the same thing as influencers in the China community. And we work with them. We work with, you know, WeChat. We've got, we are the uh, Australasian partner for WeChat. I was just, I just got back from Sydney last night from meeting up with them and helping them out in Australia and New Zealand. And it just enables us to get, to give our clients some um, sort of some insight and actions that they can't get really through anyone else. And the, But the cool thing is because we've got Flying Tiger, yes, but we've also got Socialites and Social Club, we can kind of bring it all together in one big story for the brands, which I think is really nice for them. They're dealing with one person but being able to work across every single channel and talk to all their demographics. How do you find that, you know, more traditional agencies respond to you? Because often 
you know, we're well aware from the spinoff in Daylight that when you sort of brush up against, like, like it's hard to know where the line is uh, in terms of, you know, a lot of us have overlapping services. The fact that you come from, you know, very defiantly social first approach where often put politely the the big agency can feel very social last like mm-hmm. what what do they you know how how has your reception been particularly as you've started to broaden into these uh other related areas of the business Look, I think it's been really positive. Uh, We've always been at the table with these traditional um, agencies and um, at the big end of town. And I think uh, the respect is is there. And the funny thing is they do social media. So there's no difference between um, us being at the table with our clients and, and they already offer social media, but we are offering that social media to that particular client and they're flipping over to traditional. Um, this is not about um, stepping on any toes. It's just about seeing a, an opportunity and being able to offer that to to our existing clients and and growing it to, to clients who want to um, or consider social first and then broadening out to traditional. So at the moment, it's just been really, really positive across the board. And, you know, you're, you're both women. This is a woman-owned uh, agency in a world that is still kind of, rightly or wrongly, particularly characterised as a boys' club. How do you think that, you know, or, or do you think that that um, makes a difference in terms of how you operate and the opportunities you see in these spaces? I do. Yeah, I do. It's quite um, yeah, so, so, I mean, there is a lot more women CEOs in the ad agency space at the moment. Like I look at Priya at DDB and... Nikki at Spark Foundry. So it's nice it's not all men, <laughs> which is no, great nowadays. There's definitely <laughs> been a wave towards uh, more females. Yeah. And I do. I think we um, we put a different uh, a spin on, on leadership um, and also Adland as well. We all know that uh, Adland has um, uh, renowned for being egotistical and a little bit arrogant and, and um, we bring a little bit of a different spin on that, which I think is, is, is needed in the industry. And in terms of the, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in the release uh, announcing the new name was that you, you know, part of this is that you're on the all of government uh, panel, uh, you know, in, in terms of having access to that. And, you know, it's one thing to think about trying to convince a brand to embrace lo-fi and kind of <laughs> get comfortable at the edge of the culture. It's quite another, again, thinking about the the risk aversion and the, the stakeholders involved in, in government and government agencies. What What is your experience of the you know, parts of government's willingness to kind of play in this area? And do you think that they deploy social as well as they might? They're getting really, really good at it. Um, we've actually worked on a couple of campaigns uh, where we've worked with influencers um, that was um, with That's Us or the That's Us campaign um, during COVID um, and that was connecting with uh, Māori uh, rangatahi and uh, the the content was like off the charts. We actually won quite a few awards for it because the government agency was just really, really brave. Yes, we did not get the vortex of um, long white through, uh, but we got a vortex of 
water through through and that was content that really really resonated with the audience that audience that we were wanting to speak to so they're actually getting really um across it and um supporting it yeah they've asked you down to talk to them a couple of times yep. haven't they mel yeah yeah like specifically like this is cool how do we get amongst it mm. send down mel <laughs> and in terms of um you know mentioned earlier t- tiktok and its growth uh did like we're still, it doesn't feel like the uh, the kind of advertising marketing participation in TikTok has matched the the level of user growth. There is that fair to say? And how do you sort of see that platform kind of growing and and evolving? It's a pretty serious platform. It really, I'm not sure what the latest numbers are, but it's it is eating meters lunch to be honest. From what one, I can see. Average of, <laughs> average of one and a half hours spent on TikTok a day by the New Zealand population. Uh, and brands are really jumping on board. Um, TikTok is definitely more immature in terms of um, um, so many things compared mm. to Meta, uh, but so mature in other ways. And they know that uh, the audience wants to be entertained. They want to find joy. And that's why they go to TikTok. So that's where brands are brands are headed. Yeah. The, kind of the as a brand, the great thing about TikTok is it's, it's really one single-minded focused. It is, as Mel said, entertain, entertain me, give me joy. That like that's it. Whereas if you look at the other platforms, there's a lot more uh, nuance and depth you can go into. So it's 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 almost a simple platform in do some you, ways. Do you see in a sort of a different generation of or, or, or group of influencers succeeding there, or, or can, are people succeeding in porting across followings between the platforms? A bit of both. There's definitely um, they're jumping around influencers, especially like professional influencers who've been around for say you know. Five, I love this like really old five years, um, but, but also there's some really cool new ones coming through, which is which is really great. And I'm we've got the spotting team out spotting for them. <laughs> so t- tell me about that spotting team and the, the talent ID front, and and maybe even name like you know a, a couple of people who you think are doing kind of really interesting things with within the, that space or, or those communities. So for us, um, our talent agency, People of Influence, we have uh, influencers that uh, have influence outside the the internet. So uh, they're either sports people or radio presenters, um, TV um, personalities. And that is really important to us because they have real influence with their communities and that's that's our filter, I guess. Um, and we keep our roster quite tight. Um, and we do that for a reason because we want to make sure that we're giving them the best service, but we're also not a, a spray and pray, kind of just get everyone on board. Um, in terms of an influencer that's doing a great job. I, I was telling Mel the other day, I think I rang her up, I think when I was in Sydney, I've got, I've got an idea. We should do like New Zealand's next top influencer campaign. Just be hilarious just to try and find one. Probably a really bad idea, but it would be really be fun, fun to see who's out there. <laughs> but there must be someone who, who kind of stands out as feeling like they epitomise this, this I like, era. Um, is it Dr Tick? Uh, oh, yes. What's his name? Dr yeah. Tick? He's got Tourette's. Yes, and he, yeah, he's, he's really fun to work with. And I've like I've been following him forever since my, at the time, I think, 12-year-old told me I need to follow this amazing Kiwi influencer and he's this awesome um, 
content creator who has Tourette's in New Zealand, and he's just hilariously funny. He brings me joy. It's an example. Like, it's just bizarre, but it's just awesome. There are just, there are so many, there are so many incredible influencers and, and ambassadors out there. Um, Maybe we that, should do a who's who list of the top, our top yeah, 100 or something every year. Thanks, Duncan. We like that no, idea. <laughs> no, great, because it can feel like, uh, because you're, you're right, these, these things are about communities and, you know, and the, the world we left behind, the monoculture, everyone had a, at least a grazing visibility over what, a quote-unquote celebrity was now someone mm-hmm. can be an enormous uh, star and have actually no proximity to someone who might be in someone else's pocket kind of full-time and I guess that's the sort of you know the what you know to me that one of the key things that's changed over the last decade or so do you know when you see you know like you know did, is there still a kind of a premium for a a, a sort of a monoculture type figure and so I'm thinking about yeah probably more people of influence versus socialites uh cast like the kind kinds of people who can uh still you know get on a breakfast or or, you know like there's that just Mm. that layer that like the Will Smith (laughs) yeah yeah we all want you to be president (laughs) and and do action movies (laughs) yeah like what 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 is the kind of like is there is there a premium there or brands increasingly agnostic they don't have to necessarily have heard of the person they can just see their following and trust that you have a guide on on the impact that they can bring the funny thing is the follower numbers don't really I mean it's a vanity metric. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't mean much. Um, it's actually, uh, you know, who are they as a person? Do they do their values align? Um, are they creating the content um, that is right from for the brand, but also will resonate with the audience? Um, do they get a premium? Uh, yeah, sure. They yeah. If they um, can connect with their audience and get that engagement um, because of who they are of course they will get a premium, 100%. Um, but funnily enough, it's some of the, the nanos and the up-and-coming you know, smaller influencers that get incredible engagement because they know their communities really, really well. So, um, and then you've got huge influencers um, that are not connecting with their audience. So it, I, I know um, it's not really answering your question, but it absolutely depends on who, who No, I are. think that's, that's really... Interesting to me because I, you know, I heard that you, you sort of read that quite a lot that there's a, you know, the nano influencer or a sort of what might be seen as a subscale influencer will have a much bigger proportional impact on their audience than someone who might have 10 or even 100 times the following, but it's kind of tumbleweeds because it just doesn't, it feels like it's coming from a thousand miles up rather mm. than happening around them. But again, do you? Like they're just a, they're extra layers of complexity when you're you know you talked about the the type of uh, scrutiny that you um, it's easier to scrutinize one person with a hundred thousand followers than it is ten with ten thousand right like surely you must have moments when things don't quite quite go according to plan when you're sort of trying to build 
a more intense but distributed uh, campaign amongst amongst smaller influencers. Yeah, for sure. Um, it is it is way more difficult because um, you're going through the weeds and you're finding more people who can make more mistakes. Um, and that, as I um, alluded to at the beginning, is that that briefing and that contracting needs to be watertight. But yes, of course, sometimes it goes wrong. Sometimes the content that they produce is, is just not on the mark or it's just not um, uh, singing. So we have to get them to to reshoot um, or redo do the content. But that's about as far as um, we we have got with anything that's gone wrong. We haven't had anything go ter- terribly wrong. But um, when you are trying to find many influences with um, fewer audiences, it is actually more difficult for sure. And lastly, you know, I've I wrote something about the the sort of the rise of user-generated content and and how it exists as this kind of alternate universe in a way to the, uh, the to the Hollywood kind of entertainment uh, complex, you know, which is currently on strike. And I guess the thesis <laughs> of the piece was like, you know, you, you can have your, all the picket lines you want over here, but this world is growing. At a pace, you know, like this time last year, Netflix was bigger than YouTube, um, according to Nielsen's new gauge TV metrics. Now that that's flipped mm. again, um, and you can't imagine that with the pipe stopped on the Hollywood side, that you won't see this world that the sort of user generated content world continue to grow, which creates, you know, you would think more opportunity for you. We're looking ahead to sort of imagining, say, at the end of this decade. Where do you see, you know, Thomson Spencer in, in terms of its scale relative to those more traditionally oriented um, companies? I think we've got a leading leading start <laughs> for this new world. So hopefully we're we're ginormous and global takeover and as big as Netflix, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> it's the only way to answer that question, isn't it? <laughs> Mel's like, oh gosh, Wendy. <laughs> Why not? But I do think it's um, that's such a really interesting point, and I hadn't thought about it in that way, Duncan. That's really cool, because like you're right, that's where it's coming up. If I look at my my, my even my kids, and one of them especially is an exceptional content creator, and you know she could do anything she wants really, and she doesn't need to, you know, necessarily know the right people or be in the right country or have the right you know expensive million dollars worth of tools. She can actually be this incredible artist. And it's kind of democratised the whole world in a way. If you obviously there's the negative side as well, but in a positive way, that sort of movement is opening it up to a whole lot of people who wouldn't normally have a chance to tell their stories or live their dreams. So it's quite powerful. And I hope for Thompson Spencer that we get to be a, um, a small part of that and you know find these amazing people and give them the springboard to do some great stuff. I think we've got some cool things in the wings, hopefully, to do that. Cool. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much uh, to both of you for coming up. And yeah, it's it's such a fascinating, you know, as someone who kind of comes from a legacy traditional media kind of a background in a way, even though we've been digital since day one, it can be quite confronting, but I don't think there's, you know, you can just feel the force of it. It's, it's uh, you know, that, that, that shift is is baked in and uh, no, I you know, wish you all, all the best of luck and, and, you know, building that bridge between the, you know, between brands and, and the creators who want to work with them. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you, Duncan. Cool. Kia ora e te iwi, te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. 
If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.